Thanks for tuning in today. This is Reza Rule, broadcasting from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I'm Kevin Wu, co-hosting with Reza today. Welcome to episode three of Project Phoenix. This is Code Red. Today, we will take a look at the wildland urban interface and its connection to destructive wildfires. We will also hear from an expert on the topic and examine the recent Marshall Fire here in Colorado. Previously on this series, you heard Ariana and Michael explore the social inequities that impact both housing and the environment, and which allow for certain people to either be displaced from their homes or face elements that are hazardous to their health and their surroundings. As for us, we will continue to look at housing, however, we will focus on how the natural environment plays a role in the housing situation. Kevin, what is your take on the housing situation here in Colorado? Well, it's definitely something to be concerned about. Rent is, as you probably know, astronomically high, and students are often facing the dilemma of whether or not they need to pay for rent or food, both things of which obviously someone should not worry about. I know in the past there have been several movements to get some housing reform, like the Bedrooms Are For People campaign, which brings us to our next topic. Housing has no shortage of issues, um, and that, I think this was really something that I think most of us should focus and aim to change up. Yeah, so we're going to take a deeper look at the climate's impact on housing and how our relationship with nature has been in recent years. For low-income communities, nature's impact on housing is nothing new. However, it's only recently that it's affected more affluent communities at this scale. We're starting to see this topic brought up in social circles that rarely talked about this before. In order to fully understand what is happening, we need to know what the wildland-urban interface is. All right. So, Kevin, what exactly is the wildland-urban interface? Well, from my understanding, the wildland-urban interface is the zone between human development and unoccupied wildland. The National Academy of Sciences estimates that one in three houses are in what is considered the wildland-urban interface. Wow, that's a lot of houses. Yeah, and as you can see, imagine the proximity to all these fuel puts these houses at a much higher risk of being burned down in a wildfire. Well, that's sort of as much as I know about what the wildland-urban interface is. I sat down with Dr. Adam Mayhood, and he gave some interesting insights about the fire ecology. Uh, my name's Adam Mayhood, and I'm a postdoc at EarthLab um, over on East Campus. I mainly study fire ecology and plant community ecology. So that kind of means my main research is about kind of how plant communities respond to fires. Alrighty. So why do you think studying fire ecology is so important? Many ecosystems around the world um, are fire prone. And so if you don't understand fire, you don't really understand the ecosystem in many areas. And even... um, areas that are not fire prone they're kind of not fire prone for a reason they have specific adaptations to uh to make themselves inflammable so yeah it's really just an ubiquitous force on the on the world and just happens everywhere and if it doesn't happen somewhere there's kind of for a reason so can you speak to the wildland urban interface a little bit and sort of what its impact is to us specifically more urbanized areas yeah so um I've actually been involved in a few studies where we look at human versus lightning ignitions. Um, So, you know, essentially all natural fires are 
the result of lightning strikes. I mean, you, you know, you just sit there and rack your brains. Like, how else would a, start, a fire just randomly start besides, uh, or like a meteor? Um, so those are pretty rare. But um, but so all the other fires that start that are not lightning strikes are somehow started by humans, be it power lines, train sparks from trains, um, people, uh, you know, lighting campfires, throwing cigarettes, kids playing with matches, people burning their garbage. There's a lot of different really common ways that people start fires. Typically, human caused fires are smaller and more destructive than lightning ignited fires. And this is because um, there are just a lot more human ignitions than there are lightning strikes. When a human starts a fire, they're just closer to where humans are. You know, like the average human is typically near civil, near some kind of civilization. Um, yeah, there's several several studies out now that kind of show that. One of my colleagues, Nate, he studied this phenomenon and um, kind of found that like the vast majority of structures that are destroyed are destroyed by human caused fires. And so, um, yes, it's it's pretty interesting. You can uh, you can look at maps of human ignitions versus lightning ignitions. The, the spatial pattern is completely different. You know, the the human ignition map looks looks like a map of highways and population centers, while the lightning ignition kind of looks like a map of mountains. <laughs> wow, that was definitely very interesting listening to him speak about his perspective on fire ecology. It's quite also interesting to see how wildfires start in the first place. The only real natural way for a wildfire to start is from lightning, as he said. Yeah, and nowadays we see a lot of wildfires caused by humans. Take the gender reveal incident a couple of years ago in California as an example. What's even more frustrating about it is that regardless of the danger, people still continue to build their houses in this zone. It's this idea of desirable land that I honestly find interesting. Even in highly congested areas in California, people are constantly buying up and building properties on the side of mountains. Yeah, when you look at these houses right beneath Griffith Observatory in LA, it's scary. They're just sitting up there with very steep roads and hills with albino nice view, but it's highly emblematic of the issue at hand. What's scary too is that you don't even have to live near what you would consider wildland. Sometimes the fire comes right to you. This is what made the Marshall Fire in Louisville and Superior especially scary.
You just heard some sounds from the scene that day, December 30th, 2021. I wasn't there that day, but my co-host Kevin lives in Superior. Kevin, what was it like that day? You remember waking up that day and noticing anything different? Yeah, um, funny that you say that because in reality, um, we did not know anything was happening until three hours into it. Um, because, yeah, from what I was told, it started around noon-ish, um, around there, and around the Old Town Superior slash Louisville area, and then it slowly grew and grew, and then we heard a loud banging on the door at, like, one, but we weren't sure who exactly it was, um, I think a bunch of us were very distracted, I heard it slightly, and I was, like, wondering what it was, um, and you had no idea there's a fire up until this point. Yeah, um, because, yeah, I later found out it was the police knocking on the door, banging on the door super loud, but uh, when they knocked, we had absolutely, we were very oblivious to a fire outside. Um, and it wasn't until an hour after that where we suddenly started looking at our phones, seeing the news, um, getting texts from uh, friends and that kind of a thing that we f- found out like that there was a fire um, and for us we kind of it's kind of bad but um, for us we didn't we waited for my dad to come back and it was quite a big mess of trying to exit because I think lots of people were trying to get out either through 30, US 36 on the highway to Denver in that sort of direction, or just straight up towards, like, Broomfield or that kind of thing. For us, we kind of waited um, for a little bit uh, and decided to uh, sort of wait it out, see if it was actually truly coming in our direction. Um, and when how, far, how far were you from the fire, you know? Yeah, so actually, it was like less, it's about a mile or so. So it wasn't that far away. Like, we could see it from a second floor of our house. We could see, like, the flames going up and down the wild, like, the open spaces. And um, to this day, there's, like, huge burn scars still there. Um, That's very visible of that day. Um, And, in fact, like, there's this one road, Colton, um, that splits North Superior and South Superior and sort of, like in half um and we're fortunate that the fire doesn't did not cross that road um and we live on the southern side of superior so for us we were very lucky in that nothing was um we weren't affected too badly um but you fully evacuated right yeah what'd you bring i think my parents were more focused on the sentimental value of things with like photos and that kind of thing where I had mostly digitized a lot of my things so I just brought loads upon loads of hard drives so um yeah for me it was mostly of that sort uh my computer and that kind of thing more electronics based thing I for me it was I didn't really have a lot of sentimental values stuff that I had to bring along it was more so like monetary value that I decided to bring um and that's kind of I guess kind of resemblant of like the generational shift between 
me and my parents where they're they have everything like hard copies of everything which are very hard to replace um whereas mine uh was pretty simple of like bringing along a hard drive so um but yeah along with that like a couple days change of clothes um and reality i think i didn't bring much else because i knew in my heart that our house wouldn't get too affected too much um because i think for the most part um during the fire like we actually stayed um for like five hours watching from the edge of the evacuation zone right yeah when were you allowed back to your house you mentioned you were waiting it out on the edge when when were you actually allowed to go back to your neighborhood yeah so like two hours or not two hours two days um until we were allowed to like drive in and they like lifted the um zone to where uh i could enter um so yeah for me it was a lot of just trying to a lot of waiting i think um and then after that first night or the first day the following day um me and my uh parents we actually (laughs) it's funny because we weren't allowed to drive into superior but we could walk into superior so we just like parked on the edge and sort of walked in um just like turn off the heat i mean not turn off the heat like turn off the water because you knew your house was fine at this point though yeah so like we had we just and had to go back in um because that day it got dropped like 30 degrees and um we had to um shut off our water so our pipes didn't freeze or burst or that kind of a thing um so we went in turn off the water um, that was that, uh, throughout the entire town has appeared, the water was, sh- like, people were turning on off the water manually, so that was the one thing we could control. Electricity, for some reason, was still on, um, and, uh, the natural gas was, however, off, so, um, that's what aided our decision to go back and turn off the water, because... No heat. <laughs> yeah, so, um, the natural gas was an issue... T- just because so we couldn't stay in there because since it was so cold in our house we decided to stay at our friends um in lafayette like another couple of days um until they turn on the gas Uh, and what confused a lot of people too was that we needed to be home and for the in order for them to turn on the gas so um yeah on the three days afterwards we returned and just sort of stayed in a cold household um which was quite an adventure i'd say it's similar to camping except you're inside your (laughs) own home um but yeah that's as far as like things going on that in that day specifically in the days preceding preceding it i think it's played like it's played out in my mind so much and i keep thinking about what would i have done differently what i've possibly um brought like other things with me um and just i think the thought of doing that and maybe potentially even trying to do it over again i think scares me in a way that i don't want to do it because no one else like no one should ever have to go through the pain and like trauma of trying to evacuate um even the process of evacuation is a very taboo topic because when someone says evacuate, 
you don't really ex- exactly know what that means. Like, where do, to? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's an, one of the big questions. Like, for number one, where to? Number two, what do you bring? Um, even in other like scary situations, like, um, I guess, like I think the idea of evacuation, leaving it behind everything you've ever known, is the scary part from my point of view. Yeah, and I know for the Marshall Fire, there's a lot of kind of controversy surrounding how late they noticed, they gave notice to residents about evacuating and how how little communication there was on their part. Um, What do you think about that? Yeah, I think they, in Louisville at least, I know they were trying to do reverse 911 calls. um, And there was like a bunch of, there's an app called Nextdoor that a lot of like homeowners in the community use. So alerts were sent through that, social media. But I think in the end, um, a lot of the residents from what I like, engaging that there was a big communication breakdown and that it was very hard to um i guess get the proper information like get the proper information from the correct channels because um like i said people didn't know where to go and um the place were very vague they said go east so um there was a huge traffic jam going down 36 with people going east so um yeah i think for us it was a lot of trying to think about what was the best course of action and trying to just use our common sense of like what to do at that point because um i think communication wise from official channels were a bit cloudy and muddled on that day um it got a little better over the next like the preceding days in terms of like recovery and that kind of thing um And yeah, I think definitely the communication could have been a lot better. Thanks for listening to Code Red with your hosts, Reza Rule and Kevin Wu. Make sure to tune in to the next episode of Project Phoenix, where Andrew and Elijah will further discuss the recent wildfires in Boulder County and look at where we might go from here. Thank you and goodbye.